February 20th, 2003, near the banks of the Patuxent River, the town of West Warwick, Rhode Island, was home to some of the earliest textile mills in the U.S. and to St. Louis Cardinals pitching coach, Mike Roark. It was also home to a hard rock music venue that had been known by many different names over the years. On this Thursday night, it was known by its final name. A name that would carry with it the names of 100 people who died within its walls. I'm Tim Coleman. I'm Jeff Moss. And I'm Tyler J. Thomas. Together we will explore and discuss these events from the perspective of over 30 years of combined locksmith and door hardware experience. This is The Three Tumblers. Now, The Station Nightclub Fire, Part 1, Years Before. Sixty years earlier, Saturday, November 28th, 1942. 492 people died at the Coconut Grove nightclub in Boston, Massachusetts, when decorations trying to give a tropical paradise feel caught fire. The exact cause was never officially determined. Many victims die trying to flee for their lives through the single revolving door at the front of the club. 56 years earlier, Tuesday, March 25th, 1947. The Lotta brothers, Henry and Casey, open a gin mill called The Wheel at 211 Cohesit Avenue in West Warwick, Rhode Island. A honky-tonk, dive, watering hole, or whatever you called it, the saloon was instantly a place worthy of fights from the Old West. It stays this way until 1964, when it becomes a spot for the local 1350 of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees Union. 35 years earlier, Friday, May 12, 1967. Joseph Musciano buys the building and land. Initially, he calls the club Cedar Acres Inn. About a year later, he thinks a rebranding to The Dollhouse would be better for business. 33 years earlier, Monday, April 27, 1970. After just three years of running The Dollhouse, Joe called it quits and sold out to Charles and Jeannie Petrarca. They start calling the joint the Red Fox. At the time, a fire marshal from West Warwick set the official seating capacity to 50 people. 26 weeks and six days later at the club's Sing Sep in France, a dropped match sets a polyurethane foam sculpture of a grotto on fire. It kills 146 people in less than five minutes on that first Sunday of November. 31 years earlier, 1972. The building at 211 Cohesit Avenue was now known as Julio's. 
a fire broke out while the building was unoccupied and significantly damaged the interior. While the main structure was largely unscathed, the fire department had to cut multiple openings in the roof to let the heat and smoke escape. 28 years earlier, Wednesday, June 5th, 1974. Raymond Villanova, through his company Triton Realty Limited Partnership, buys 211 Coesed Avenue. It opens as the new P. Brillo & Sons Italian Restaurant. In November of that same year, the first building permit after the 1972 fire was issued. This permit makes no mention of fire damage beyond interior paneling and partitions. It also doesn't say a word about the holes that had been cut into the roof two years earlier by firefighters trying to save the building from that blaze, or the charred timbers left in place that would remain until the end of the building's existence. So I personally don't know much about this story. I sort of remember when it happened, but the history, and there's plenty of venues in every city that have gone through ownership changes, building changes, fires. None of it is uncommon for uh, the hospitality industry as a whole. I presume the holes in the roof had to have been repaired at some point, albeit probably not the right way, I'm sure. But the, the charred timbers are no bueno. Charred wood is more brittle than wood that's never been obviously burned. It's been burnt before doesn't mean it can't be burned again. I mean, that's why everything eventually in the fireplace is reduced to ash. So this place was a complete dive. I mean, this was kind of like the Tri-County Country Music Bar that was about 20 or so miles away from where I lived and grew up. Up until the time of the story that we're telling, this place was one of those off-the-road gin joints that you might expect to find some shady characters in. Twenty-four years earlier, 1978. Jack Russell was an 18-year-old kid fresh out of high school. After growing up listening to Robert Plant and Steven Tyler, he became a vocalist for a few high school bands. When he graduated, he met a pasty, white-haired guy named Mark Kendall at a concert, and the two soon started a band called Livewire. In 1979, Jack got arrested for shooting a live-in maid during a robbery gone bad, and was sentenced to eight years in prison. Kendall started from scratch and signed up Don Costa for the bass and Tony Richards on the drums. After a few tries, they landed on singer Lisa Baker. Under the name Dante Fox, they played around the Orange County and LA area until Lisa left the group. Jack only had to serve a few months of his prison sentence and was back out on the street in no time. He hit up Mark Kendall and managed to get a spot back in the band by a two to one vote. Alan Naven was chosen as the band's manager, and he quickly suggested the band change their name. Kendall's signature look with his white Telecaster guitar, white jumpsuit, white Capizio shoes, white hair, and naturally pale complexion left an impression on fans. 
After a show at the Troubadour, a kid in the crowd said, There goes Great White. The name stuck to the entire band after that. 21 years before 1982. The West Warwick Fire Marshal sets the seating capacity of P. Brillo's restaurant to 161 people. Even though the building could now officially hold 111 more people than originally rated for, the physical size of the building hasn't changed a bit. 18 years before, Tuesday, February 5th, 1985. P. Brillo's liquor license is transferred to Glenn Madden, and he changes the name to Glenn's Pub. Later that same year, the Kennett Corporation buys Glenn out and renames the club Cracker Jacks. It's important to mention that it is not uncommon for changes to building capacities, either up or down. The point I'm trying to make is that changes, they're not uncommon. The massive spike is what I'm really trying to figure out here. Using today's standards of 15 square feet per person in a building for what they call unconcentrated or less concentrated use. This building was more than large enough to carry that rating and the inspector recognized that it wasn't a good idea to just go off of the total square footage and back things down a bit. Once you build out a venue to serve food and or alcohol, you're pretty much stuck with that unless if you go through and gut the whole place. I mean, even today we see buildings that are uh, purposed and repurposed and repurposed again as some sort of food, dining, or entertainment establishment. After a few years of making money to pay off your original investment, then you turn around and you sell the business as it is. So this is also fairly common. Yeah, I mean, the infrastructure costs in building and rebuilding is pretty damn expensive. Um, that the liquor license is worth a lot of money. It could be worth more than the business itself. 13 years before, Saturday, May 13th, 1989. Great White releases their fourth album, Twice Shy. Their single from the album, Once Bitten, Twice Shy, was a hit and stayed on the Billboard Hot 100 list for 26 weeks. It peaked at number five on August 12th, 1989. 11 years before, 1992. The West Warwick Fire Marshal increases the approved capacity of the building to 225 people. Although the signage and decorations have changed over the years, the building remains in its original 4,484 square foot configuration. With the main bar, kitchen, dart room, sunroom, dance floor, and stage, there was a short hallway coming in from the main customer entryway. Three other exterior doors were located on the building, including one behind the stage and to the audience's right. Ten years before, Tuesday, January 5th, 1993. Cracker Jacks is bought by Raymond Skip Shrogan and renames it to the filling station. Seven years before, Tuesday, December 5th, 
1995. The filling station changes hands again, this time being bought by Howard Julian. Because the club is situated in a transitional area between commercial properties and residential neighborhoods, he starts getting complaints about the late-night noise. A few months later, Howard installs 17-inch square blocks of white, 2-inch thick polyethylene foam around the drummer's alcove. Neighbor complaints are pretty common around establishments like this. The location where the filling station, as it is now known, uh, is in a transitional point where you come out of commercial properties and into residential areas. In my personal professional experience, when you have a loud noise venue, such as a nightclub near residential areas, you will get these noise complaints from residents. So just keep this in mind as we tell the story. You know, there's only so many things you can do without changing zoning and going for variances. That's happening here. There's office buildings that they're trying to convert to mixed use, which would be mostly residential. And there's a lot of stuff that has to be in place for that to happen. Updated fire codes and things like that. You know, that changes things for the fire department. They have to put amplification in for the radio systems. They have to make sure that the parking lot can hold the heavy fire trucks or parking garage. And it doesn't likely have any more of those chairs or tables anymore. And that qualifies what we call today concentrated use. They're still fine here. Today, there are two ways you can calculate the square footage when determining the occupant load. You can either do gross area, which is basically how they calculate your home's square footage, or you can count the net floor area, which is basically only counting the occupiable space. Right now, I interpret things are still good. Three years before, Tuesday, December 30th, 1999. West Warwick Fire Marshal Dennis LaRoque performs an inspection and grants the club an occupancy rating of 258 people. That number is increased to 317 if there are no tables used. Three years before, March 2000. A local businessman by the name of Michael Tedarian and his brother Jeffrey, a TV news reporter, pay $130,000 to take over the business. Triton Realty still has ownership on the property and rents it to the brothers for $3,500 a month. After the transfer of ownership, Fire Marshal increases the official standing capacity to 401 people. 33 months before, May 2000. The Derdarian brothers get a warning letter from the West Warwick police chief saying that their entertainment license won't be approved unless they fix the noise problem. They meet with Barry Warner, who lives near the club, to try and work something out. Barry makes a deal with them to buy foam that his company just happens to sell. 32 months before, Tuesday, June 27th, 2000. Michael Derdarian buys 25 sheets of polyurethane packing foam 
from Barry Warner for $575. 27 months before, November 2000. Great White is booking its 2003 tour and lands a spot performing at the station. In exchange for performing a 90-minute set at the venue, they'll get paid five grand. 183 days before, Wednesday, August 21st, 2002. Lead singer Jack Russell files for personal bankruptcy. He owes creditors $200,000 and only has 20K in the bank. 92 days before, November 2002. During an inspection of the station, Fire Marshal LaRoque finds nine different code violations, including an inward swinging door. Twelve days later, he returns for a follow-up inspection and gives it an all-okay. He failed to note the highly flammable 900 square feet of polyurethane foam glued to the walls to keep the noise down. 44 days before, Tuesday, January 7, 2003. Rhode Island's 73rd Governor, Donald L. Karcheri, is sworn in. Noise violations and complaints coming from neighbors are very common. When it escalates to the point that local municipal agencies are involved, they bring in every agency if those issues are not corrected. And I've seen it firsthand actually close down an entire business. So business owners are very motivated to correct these issues and make things right. Is it just coincidence that probably the loudest complainants of this noise happens to sell foam? I don't know. I'll let listeners make their own decisions. This whole fire inspector thing doesn't either he's doesn't know what he's doing or he's purposely not citing them for certain things. I'm sure that will come up at some point to bite us. The real thing that I'm worried about was the inward swinging door fixed in 12 days because in my experience, that's a multi-week process. Maybe that was done and that was the all okay. But if not, uh, everything that I just said before about how the increased capacity is still fine no, it's not anymore. Now, the occupancy capacity is immaterial because it's calculated based on the presumption that all other rules, including things like outward swinging doors, are being followed. And unless this was corrected within that 12-day grace period, the rules don't matter anymore. So it doesn't matter how many people you have in there because, you know, that's all presumed to be on the basis that the doors flow the way they're supposed to flow. Three days before, Monday, February 17th, 2003. In Chicago, Illinois, 21 people are killed and over 50 injured in a stampede at an overcrowded East Side nightclub called E2. That same night in Minneapolis, 
at the Fine Line Music Cafe, the band Jet City used pyrotechnics and set the ceiling of the club on fire. The sprinkler system kicked in and quickly put out the flames, allowing all 120 patrons to get out safely. One day before, Wednesday, February 19th, 2003. During a snowstorm that dumps over a foot on the ground, Jack Russell's Great White arrives in Rhode Island. Ten hours before, Thursday, February 20th, 2003. State Fire Marshal Irving J. Owens is interviewed by local media for his reaction to the events in Chicago. He explains that the state's fire codes make it virtually impossible for any type of catastrophic event like that to happen. Quote, it's very remote that something like that would happen here, end quote. You know, we're talking about all these doors and being in bizarre places and you just really have to wonder how stuff like this goes on for so long and it, you know, this building's already been open for many, many years. I hate to say the fact that they've only had, you know, one or two fires is kind of surprising because it seems like there's an occupancy overload, there's egress issues, and lots of flammable stuff in there. You know, it's sort of like it's not a matter of if it's going to happen, it's a matter of when. Here's this guy saying, uh, it's very remote, something like that would happen here. Famous last words. Irving J. Owens, the fire marshal, has just put himself into a very serious corner. Now, nobody can see into the future, not back then, not now, but he just said something that I'm pretty sure uh, he will soon regret having said. Gonna regret it for the rest of his life. Five hours before. Jimmy Gunn and Mike Riccardi of WNRCLP in Massachusetts interviewed Jack Russell for their college radio show. Wanting to drum up attendance at the Thursday night performance, Jack puts Jimmy and Mike on the guest list. He's been giving free tickets away all day and even gets staff from their hotel and random strangers to attend. Four hours before. Jack goes to the Doors of Perception tattoo parlor in West Warwick wanting some new ink. He ends up adding the artist and several of their friends to his growing guest list. 52 minutes before. A disc jockey for WHJY, Michael Dr. Metal Gonzalez, was the MC for the night. He introduced the opening acts, Trip from Vancouver, Washington, and the local band called Fathead. Between their sets, Great White's road manager, Daniel Bichelle, placed two sets of four Pyropack 15 by 15 GURBs on the stage. GURBs are fireworks designed to shoot out a jet of sparks 15 feet high for 15 seconds, giving a real rocking entrance to the band. 47 minutes before. Gina Russo and her fiancé make their way through the front doors that are painted along with the rest of the front of the building in a stylization of the American flag. 
They quickly find out that the station has ran out of printed tickets for the show that night and get pieces of notepaper from the staff that serve as their admission. 27 minutes before. Brian Butler, a news photojournalist from WPRI-TV out of Providence, gets on the site. He's there to shoot video for a story about nightclub safety that Jeff Derdarian is doing in the aftermath of the stampede in Chicago. Two minutes before. Jack Russell's Great White takes the stage and begin playing a song from their album Hooked called Desert Moon. One minute before. As the band sings the lyrics, time to dance in the magic light of the desert moon. 462 men and women are packed shoulder to shoulder inside the club that was originally only supposed to hold 50 people. Executive producer is Tyler J. Thomas. Technical producer is Jeff Moss. Writer and editor is Tim Coleman. Additional research provided by Anne. Find this episode and others, along with our source material, at 3tumblers.com. This has been a 3tumblers production. Copyright 2024. All rights reserved.